Jay Richards is a uh, Ph.D. He's a uh, specialist in forensic psychology, and uh, he's been working with uh, violent offenders, uh, studying this uh, pathology of these types of people for many, many, many years. He's got a new book out called Silhouette of Virtue, and uh, we're going to be talking with Jay this morning. Uh, Well, good morning, Jay. How are you? Good morning. Doing well. Good. Hey, um, before we get into some uh, Q&A, let's, uh, let's have you give us a little uh, sketch of Silhouette of Virtue, and uh, you've got the board. Silhouette of Virtue is a mystery thriller novel. It's set in the 1970s, right at the end of the Vietnam era and the Watergate years, uh, in a small town in southern Illinois, which is right at the sort of the opening to the uh, Shawnee National Forest, a huge forest there. And in this small town, there's a series of sexual assaults, and all the victims are Asian women. There happen to be a lot of Asian women on the campus because of a special art center that's there that attracts a lot of Asian women. And the rapist tells each one of the victims that this is payback for Vietnam. He's claiming that his crimes aren't sexual. They're a form of psychological warfare retaliation. And on this campus, our hero, the protagonist, is Dr. Rivers, who's a, uh African-American philosophy professor on campus, uh, and only one other black professor on the campus who's in the drama department and a sort of a recent transplant. One of the victims accuses the drama professor of the rapes and he's a, of raping her and he's arrested and the students in the in the college become polarized at this time and there's a lot of activism some of the students are saying well this is just a racist assumption that this black man has something to do with this others are saying wait a second he's a vietnam veteran we know he's a he's sort of high strung does all these dramatic things provocative things in class maybe there's good reason they're pursuing this Eventually, the students uh, approach Dr. Rivers and ask him to get involved in this uh, as, in terms of a public voice for his colleague, and he doesn't really know the other man very much. But because the students keep demanding and he thinks this, this other professor is going to get framed, won't get a fair trial, he gets involved. And eventually, to the point where he actually gets a second mortgage on his home where he's living with his common-law wife, who is a, a white woman from an upper-class background, and their daughter. Um, and that then the first big decision he's made in his life that he can't back out of, and almost immediately he starts to think, maybe I made a mistake. So he becomes an amateur sleuth trying to find out what is really behind these sexual assaults that have been going on uh, in the campus. So your, um, your career has led you to write this uh, novel, What Causes These People to, to uh, Behave Like This, Jay? Well, I think the, the novel uh, has several types of personality disorders, we call them. Extreme characters, it would probably be another way of putting it, who get involved in crime. And that's one of the goals of the book, really, is to show how these different types of psychopaths or antisocial personalities or narcissistic, we call malign, uh, malignant narcissists, uh, what their motivation is. I think the over the last 20 years, we've come to understand that psychopaths or psychopathy is primarily a biologically driven trait. It, it has brain-based differences. So the psychopaths among us, Robert Hare at the University of British Columbia is the, is the foremost expert on this subject, 
Their brains are different. They react differently to things. For example, if you use an electric, electric uh, prod, they use an experiment. The psychopaths, actually, their skin conductivity goes uh, uh, down before they get a shock. In other words, their bodies are able to prepare for the shock, whereas the rest of us, we start sweating, and so our skins are more conductive. Hmm. So they're different people. But in addition to the psychopaths, you have people we've always called antisocial or, or sociopathic people. These are people who tend to have normal biology, but they are uh, what I call hardy. They're tough-skinned people. They... <laughs> They see the world in terms of a bad contract. They think the world is set up so uh, there's there's always a, a, a stick out there that, that you're struggling with, and one side of it has uh, shit on it and the other doesn't. So they don't want to get that side. They want you to get that side. So they <laughs> think every interaction is going to be that way. They also tend to feel that if I'm going to get something I need, I have to take it. I can't really trust anybody to take care of me or be concerned about my my needs. So it's every man for himself in this world. And the thing that's different with the antisocials is that they're angry about this. They don't like the world being this way. They, they don't think it should be this way, but they, they feel like, well, this is the way it is, and I'm going to have to cope with it. Where your psychopath is feeling, well, the world is probably that way, but good. You know, I feel quite at home with it. It's comfortable because I'm fit to survive by, by aggression, by deception, you know, whatever it takes. And then probably the last type that I would, and their characters like this in the book, are the narcissists. These are people who really believe that the world was made for them, and they either believe that because from early childhood, they their parents gave them that feedback that it's all about you, you're wonderful, you have great powers, you're attractive, or yeah, a reverse, they've had some tremendous blows early in life, and they've responded to that by denying any weakness or any fault. And so the narcissist is another kind of motivation when they feel crossed or they feel that uh, they're not being acknowledged, they've been disrespected, then they're highly motivated to get some, some kind of retaliation. And on the other hand, if someone's in their way, they don't see any problem with eliminating that person or hurting that person, either their reputation or, uh, you know, they're taking their life. They see that just as part of uh, collateral damage, you know, getting the most important things done in the world, which is advancing themselves. Hmm. Are these the same type of guys that uh, become snipers, uh, become mercenaries? Uh, I know it's to the extreme, well, you know, but... The, right, well, I think the, the psychopaths make horrible mercenaries, <laughs> they're snipers, <laughs> because they're irresponsible. I mean, they're just as likely to say, well, what, wouldn't it be interesting to poke off, you know, like, pick mm. off a few of our own guys and get away with it without people knowing. Mm. But the, the ones I'm calling the hardy personalities, the antisocial, there, a lot of them are in the normal range. In other words, they're normal. You know, they, they, they can keep their, their behavior under control, mm. but they do well in settings that allow them to use that hardiness, that sense of you need to take what you want, you need to be effective without much concern about consequences. So, they may do well in uh, law enforcement when it requires that kind of con confrontation in the military uh, or as a mercenary. And it doesn't mean they'll be breaking laws in normal civilian life. It's just that they'll take that trait. Hmm. Um, oddly enough, I often say that St. Paul in the Bible had this trait. He was ruthless in pursuing the gospel. He really didn't care who was getting killed. or He wasn't killing people, 
But if people got hurt, it didn't change his bent and, and to change Judaism into Christianity. And, and uh, if you look at his, his acts, this is a guy who's hardy, who's aggressive, who won't take no for an answer and, uh, you know, can face up with anybody. So, um, yeah, some of these people can be, you know, useful in society. Hmm. Okay, so how does this person that has some sort of genetic makeup and maybe some socioeconomic influence, how does this person turn to, let's say, um, how, how does he turn uh, against other uh, uh, races? Um, how does this person develop a an unconscious attitude against African Americans or Asians? I mean... Does this pathology grow? Does it progress as these people get older? Um, obviously, it's not a totally learned thing. But but what what tips them over? Uh, let's let's talk mm-hmm. about white and black. Um, I don't understand it because I was raised to be compassionate and understanding of of everyone. You know, I was in the service. Mm-hmm. I, I served with uh, uh, Asians and. Uh, African Americans, and you know, it was, I didn't see color when I was a kid. I guess no. I didn't see color. So, where's the color coming from? Is it learned? Is it all learned? Well, uh, no, I don't think it is. I think that our reactions to race or color or genetic differences are probably automatic. They're probably natural. Hmm. But when you take that reaction and it becomes all negative, you know, it becomes symbol for evil or badness or inferiority or animal, you know, brut- brutal, brutishness, when, that's a different thing. But we notice these differences because as if you take the, the view of how we evolve, encountering a new group was always a dangerous. It was filled with danger. They usually didn't speak the same language, but the only thing you knew is they wanted the same thing you wanted. They wanted the food and they wanted the women. So you, you encounter this group. And the more unlike you they are, the more dangerous they are to you. Uh, they may have technology you don't have. They may be stronger than you are. Um, and they, because they look different, they don't look like the animals around you. They don't look like exactly like you. You don't know quite what they are. So I think that, that initial thing might be natural. But I think racism is a, uh, it's an ideology. It was invented in the Middle Ages, actually. If, if you look at it historically, racism as it exists in the West was a combination of elements from anti-Semitism, where the Jews were being treated differently as though it was part of their nature. But prior to that, the Romans and the Greeks, when people were had different cultures, as long as they conformed to Roman law, they, were they okay. could be Romans. Citizens mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages, the Jews were isolated. They they were Christ killers. They looked different physically. They lived. In, they were forced to live in different areas. Mm-hmm. And so, increasingly in Europe, there was this idea that there are these people who are sort of devil people who are with us. And then, when they started to encounter other people around the world, there was motivation to use that same method. And, and especially since when the Europeans. Uh, interacted with the Muslim world. The Muslims in North Africa, many of their slaves were black Africans from further south, although you know many people in North Africa are black as well. But they had the institution of lifelong slavery, which didn't really exist much in the world anywhere. 
in the sense that there was no way to escape it. It's just like who you are and, and your, your genes are, mean you're a slave. So I think that's a new thing. But the reason why certain people, I think, are drawn to it is when we see a difference, we often feel this person is different from me. That's a threat to who I am. In other words, uh, if someone believes in, you know, take a simple case, they believe in Christ and someone else believes in Allah, that person may feel like, oh, if he's, ro- if he's right, then I'm wrong. And if I'm right, then he's wrong. I'm threatened by that, and I'm going to take some action for this person is, is able to force his values on me or even realize his values. Because if he realizes his values and is successful and happy in life, that means I'm wrong. You know, that the life isn't about my particular religion. And there's an anthropologist, Ernest Becker, who developed a theory about this, that essentially we all are aware that we're going to die. We're the only animals who know that. And that most of our culture and personality is trying to deny this, trying to find a way around it. Right. And when somebody tells you uh, that they don't believe in your God, they don't believe in your government system, they're telling you that you're going to die, because if they are right, then everything you're working for is not going to last. And, and if they're successful, it means you're, you know, you're on your way to death. So when those people see race as a difference, they feel like, well, these people are going to perpetuate their genes. They're going to be, the world will be populated with them and not people like me. They're going to perpetuate their values that are so different. Of course, they exaggerate the difference, mm-hmm. uh, because we all typically want the same thing. For men, it usually is they want the women and they want the food, <laughs> but <laughs> the money or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so they exaggerate these. So it's a natural defensive part of the human being that gets exaggerated. And if you're a psychopath or an antisocial or one of these malignant narcissists, you will use any means necessary to uh, eliminate that competition or that threat. Okay, but... In the, let's let's take the case of uh, let's take let's look at the uh, Palestinians and let's let's look at the uh, Jews. Well, you want to pick the easy cases, don't you? Well, that's a that's a very that's a very solid religious based ideology. Well, maybe ideology is the wrong word, but but the way I see it is you're you're going to believe to a certain point. You're going to believe what you learn. And if you have a culture that believes in the original Islamic Bible, let's say, um, how <laughs> you, you can't change that. I mean, that, that's like, that's the gene makeup of that culture, isn't it? I mean, they've been... Well, yeah, that, that's an interesting idea that cultures have. Cultures mm-hmm. have sort of cultural genes. Mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. that's probably true. Like chromosomes that, that that they change, then the whole right. that whole species of culture changes. But I think the specific example in Palestine, uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis, I don't think it's about religion at all because Palestinians, uh, uh, Muslims, Christians, you know, because many Palestinians are Christians, about twenty percent, fifteen to twenty percent. At one time, they cohabitated, right? They all they did into nineteen. Was it nineteen? Thirty-six was the last big change right. in the twenties. Before that, right. but and they didn't have these kind of problems based on religion. So what their battle about is uh, something more simple, which is land. Land, and now the land is overlapped with ethnicity. So they have a racial thing going on, and, mm-hmm. and that's why some people say that Israel has become an apartheid state, right. state because 
it's not they're saying that Muslims can't live or participate. They're saying Palestinian people, you know, that these people are going to be excluded. So there I think you do have sort of a, a, a shift of something that was political and now it's become sort of racial. And the religion is sort of a way, it's almost in between. It's sort of a way that people can point to and say, well, not only are you not as human or as godly as I am, but you have the wrong religion, too. Yeah, and that's a tough one to overcome. <laughs> right, I, I, it is. And you're asking a question of how do you learn. And, you know, for us normal people, we can learn from experience. It's really hard to do, and we're going to follow uh, the people we admire, mm-hmm. you know, the people who we think are the good people uh, will follow their lead. But for these types that, you know, that I would be dramatizing in my novel, mm-hmm. these people don't learn from experience. They, they're sort of, they're a one-tune banjo player. They play the mm-hmm. same song all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and that song is about their perpetuating themselves, you know, their own uh, ego uh, over that of other people. Okay, I want to get into something really ugly. Um, domestic violence and, and sexual abuse. I, I hate it, but I'm attracted to it. I'm attracted to the stories. Um, I, mm-hmm. um, I, I watch, I listen, I read everything I can, trying to figure out what the hell is going on inside these people's brains. All right, so why do... Uh, <laughs> Why do some people act out and why do some people don't? I mean, I don't, I don't get it. Well, you know, I think you you sort of landed on what I, I, the key philosophical message that I try to get across in my novel yes. is that the world is a terrifying place. We, we, have, we have a terrifying situation, uh, it, and yet it's mysterious and it's beautiful. So we're frightened by it, we're drawn by it, you know, we, we, we feel awe and beauty. And then we see that that's true of each other. It's true of ourselves, and it's true of those we're with. So it is true. We can make, each one of us can make a hell for the other person ourselves. And that possibility that we can make something uh, more rewarding and, you know, life-enhancing, that keeps us involved with each other. And so I think when you see this violence, this terrible, intimate violence between people, it draws us in because that is the drama of why are we living in this world where there's this form of evil, where people can do willful harm. You know, like if a comet comes down, falls out of the sky, and hits a small town, you know, that's a tragedy. But when somebody intentionally, you know, plants a bomb there to kill, hurt those people, maybe even fewer people get hurt, but it's a much bigger evil. This novel, uh, Silhouette of Virtue, it has several sexual psychopaths. Yes. And these are people who get their sense of intimacy needs and sexual needs met through violent interactions. So some people, when they're engaged in violence, they become much more disorganized. It's a disorganizing experience. They feel that it doesn't really fit with who they are, they're doing things they don't want to do. They're trying to control themselves, and their controls are failing. Uh, they want to get out of that situation if they possibly can. And if, if it's something that they feel they should do, they have to really force themselves to do it. You know, it's, it's like in the military. It's very hard to teach people to kill people at close range, for example. It's, it's difficult. People can do it. But then there are these people who, when they do something that's violent and intimately violent, they feel sort of 
pull together. Like, oh, I feel better about myself. I feel more of a person. I feel I have more power. Empowered. I feel I have more control. Empowered. It's an empowering thing for those people. Hmm. So, and then you have the added thing that it seems that for some people, the actual sexual impulse and the aggressive impulse gets sort of combined. And some of that is through learning, you know, like there are people who are beaten as children, uh, especially when they might get sexually stimulated at the same time, accidentally, or they might be sexually abused. And there's also, that's from experience, but there's also the, the possibility for some people that those systems of violence and nurturing and intimacy, they're, they're just hardwired, you know, the wires are crossing in the wrong way, to use that metaphor, mm-hmm. the, the neurology of it is abnormal. So for those people, they have a, a real existential dilemma because they're sort of wired for violence. And here's another question to go on top of that. Talk about wiring. Do we have more psychopaths today than we had a thousand years ago? Or is technology uh, enabling us to look at these types of cases? Uh, is the media uh, writing more about it, reporting more? Does this stem from day one? I think that uh, one way of looking at psychopathy mm-hmm. uh, or psychopaths is it's a reproductive strategy. Mm-hmm. The reproductive strategy of the psychopath is to have a lot of children and take care of none of them. In other words, they, they perpetuate their genes through deception and force, so they can be rapists, mm-hmm. or they deceive a lot of women into thinking they love them or that they're especially attractive, but they intend to put no resources in caring for that woman, that woman or the offspring. Hmm. So the answer is that, yes, they're probably a lot more psychopaths because that's their whole biology is aimed at increasing their numbers through sexual exploitation, through hmm. not exerting any, any resources at all. And then in most traditional societies, once a psychopath is recognized, they're killed. You know, there's no uh, long adjudication process and incarceration. They're just simply eliminated because they're seen, like in the Eskimos, if they go hunting with this guy who they've identified always sleeps with everybody's wife but never returns the favor, and, and, you know, he always takes more of the meat than he's supposed to. Well, they go hunting with him, and he just doesn't come back. But in our society... They take advantage of the rules because they're inherently cheaters. This is what they do. They, yeah. they use deception and exploitation to... I've never seen people fight for their rights more than psychopaths fight for their rights. Hmm. And they fight for rights that they don't have. You know? yeah. so, but, <laughs> but they will use the rules, the rules of the society, uh, against the other people in the society. And I think that's why they've been so successful, uh, and we see more of it. The other thing is, I think you have a lot of child-rearing problems, so there are more children who just never learn the rules, uh, that there are consequences for behavior, that there are limits, there are boundaries to what you can do, what you can expect. And then we have a lot of child abuse and neglect. I remember a friend of mine who's, who's an African, and we were talking about his childhood, and he said, well, one day I realized that I was at home and nobody was there, and it was the first time it had ever happened. Hmm. And I was so upset, and I said, well, how old were you? He says, I was 12. <laughs> wow. First time he had ever been alone, because their society is so entrenched in social relationships. And sure. he would say, well, you know, in our in our families, somebody always likes you, because there's 
you know, there's 20, 30 people in the family. So if you're the, you know, sort of like the, the unliked person, well, maybe somebody's going to like you because it's such a big group of people. Someone will relate to you. So we live our lives, you know, after the Industrial Revolution, we started living in little isolated pockets mm-hmm. called the nuclear family. Mm-hmm. And even then, you know, you'd had situations where at first the uh, the women who were operating the uh, looms were allowed to bring their children, and the children worked there with them, mm-hmm. sometimes with, uh, you know, child labor, mm-hmm. were separated from their children. So you had children for the first time raised without their mothers. Hmm. And, of course, that's continued. This separation of family, does this stem back to uh, the psychological impact that African Americans have been growing with uh, all these decades? Um, uh, You know, getting back to color and race, I don't see it. I, I just don't see it. And I don't... I, I just don't... Uh, uh, you know, here we are in the 21st century, and I don't understand why we still have this problem. I mean, we've been through so yeah. damn much. Uh, so many things have changed, you know, since the 60s, since uh, uh, right to work and right to vote. And uh, uh, a lot of a lot of African-American, uh, great Amer- African-Americans have... have uh, emerged i guess through the decades they've done some fantastic things why why when the hell are we going to put these walls down well you know you have that problem of what you call it a race relations problem and that that problem let's look at it in terms of like employment who do we hire we hire people who we feel comfortable with Mm. who do we feel comfortable with is people who are like us and we have many studies now that show about 80 percent of white people automatically prefer white faces. When they see a white face, they have a positive reaction. When they see a black face, they have a negative reaction. And and we can measure this through something called the implicit association test. And that test just measures how long it takes you to associate good things with one group and bad things with that group. And conversely, how long it takes you to do that with a different group. What happens is that whites, can associate good with white faces almost immediately. And it's hard for them to associate bad things with white faces. But they easily associate bad things, including violence and weapons, with black faces. So when it comes to a hiring decision and somebody says, well, you know, that guy interviewed, and, and just don't really feel comfortable. Or his, his name on the, on the application is Jamal. Well, Jamal... I just don't feel comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. But if his name is, you know, uh, something that might be more stereotypically white, that, that reaction is not going to happen. So I think there's that thing going on. And then something that you mentioned about color mm-hmm. and this thing about the background of slavery and Jim Crow and mm-hmm. segregation. Mm-hmm. When you when we see a, a black person today, an African-American, and I am African-American, when you see a person of color who's African-American in the United States, you do know something about them. You know that some of their relatives were slaves, probably, in the United States, mm-hmm. or they lived in conditions of free people of color who still could be stopped at any time and asked where their papers were, mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. weren't allowed to own property. Uh, the state of Oregon, for example, uh, its constitution was set up 
originally set up to, as a white state, and they did not want any any black people there or other undesirables, but you know, specifically blacks. So you do know that these people have had this history. Now, how is that affecting that person today? Maybe not at all. Uh, maybe a lot. But you know, things like the slavery situation, you, you just can't have you know centuries of people being beaten. Uh, you know, raped, uh, having no rights, uh, working uh, a whole life with no reward, and expect them to, to behave and prosper in the same way as people who didn't have that experience. It's just sort of irrational that that would happen. So we all live with history. You know, we carry that history with us. And I think one of the things in my novel is tough is that a lot of the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm black, I'm African-American, but a lot of the bad guys in my book are African-American. And I, and I've had people respond to it like, oh, how could you have this guy be so horrible? And I said, well, you know, he's a free person like everybody else. Just because he's black doesn't mean he can't be evil. He can't do these bad things. And that, you know, we don't foreknow how, you know, people are going to be. Hmm. You know, we don't, we're not living in a morality play. All right. Well, I don't know. I, I, I've aspired to uh, a number of black men and women uh, growing up. I mean, I, hell, I'm 61, but... Uh, I tell you what, when Colin Powell was uh, was in with Bush, I uh, I would have followed him anywhere. I mean, yeah, here's a good example that people can overcome these automatic biases, yeah. and they can be rational. You know, they can say, "Well, I I had a reaction." You know, you have this reaction. If you notice it, most of the time we don't. And when you notice it, you can say, "Well, you know, that's something I want to base my decisions on." Mm. So, so, like, let's say you're a employer you have a restaurant and there's a kid who comes in you don't notice that he's black necessarily but you notice he's wearing this hip-hop clothing hat is sort of cocked to the side and you're thinking oh this kid has all these sort of street attitudes he's probably going to be a thief he's probably not going to come in but you could have that reaction and think well that's probably a stereotype what i'll do is i'll hire the kid and watch mm-hmm like I do everybody else when I hire them, I see what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the especially because of the media, we can't help but have these these reactions, you know, these sort of immediate reactions from what we've seen portrayed, you know, many many times. Like I was I was joking the other night with my wife. We were watching television. It's like the fifth time we saw a situation where a, a white prostitute on a TV show was working her way through law school. So I thought, well, the next time I go to court and I see a white female uh, uh, attorney, you know, should I ask them, you know, were you a prostitute? Because <laughs> I've seen five of you on television. And, you know, of course that would be so insulted. And if, if the person I ask is a judge, I'm going to find myself in jail. <laughs> but, but if I've seen this represented over and over, and, and interesting is enough, you see many black female prostitutes in the media, I've never seen one working her way through law school. They've never had that story. Their story was, I was a drug addict, or I was, you know, my pimp beat me up and abused me, uh, or I just like the street life. So when we see these, we're getting programmed through the media that, you know, perpetuates certain views. I don't think it's a conspiracy. Uh, they, you know, they, they, they put out what people are going to be interested in and, yeah. and will buy easily. Yeah, um, but it affects us. Hmm. But we can we can step aside and say I'm not going to let that affect my decision making, especially like in a trial. You hmm. know, we we have good evidence that 
most white jurors will negatively respond to a, a, a black uh, defendant. And so, it's such a strong thing that recently a, a judge came into court and saw this black man at the defense table talking to someone, and he walked up to him and said, you're not supposed to be here until your attorney gets here. You should go back over there oh, with the man, uh, you officers. Oh, man, you got kidding me. Good, no, but good. it was the attorney. His, his uh, client was white. It was the defendant. Jesus, <laughs> and and what the, the story goes that that they all laughed it off. The, the defense attorney who was black, the uh, judge, and I could tell you if it had been a black defendant, it wouldn't be a laughing matter because it would mean that judge already had some idea in his mind. In fact, we we can see that in in for example uh, trial liability trials. Uh, a jury just will not give a million dollars to a black attorney mm-hmm. who is seeking damages. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. They'll get something under that amount uh, because it's sort of a somehow it doesn't feel that the client deserves this. See, and there's that da- there's that damn color thing again, though. You know, it's like, come on. I got I look at. I'm from Connecticut. I moved to Idaho 25, 30 years ago, right? I mean, from uh-huh. Connecticut to Idaho, give me a break. I mean, it took me a year to, to figure out why people can't think on their feet out here. But, you know. Right, and it's, a big, it's a big world. Big it's a, yeah. But I'm meeting, I'm, I'm meeting new guys, right? Uh, one, of the, one of the cops here is, uh, is a black Italian, right? He's from New York. Uh-huh. He's a little bit younger than I am, but he's, a, he's also a vet. You know, he's been through some shit. And uh, right. we talk. He's got a kid. And... Um, you know, I call him. I call him a crazy Italian. I don't call him, you know, <laughs> you, you dumb, you know, whatever. Or yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's. You're from New York. You're freaking Italian. You you know you you nutcase. Right. It's like, you know. Well, you guys have that East Coast connection too. Well, we do. We we got the food and the have, and we got the food to connect us. Right. 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 Yeah. And, and there's the pace. There's a whole different pace and everything. I tell you, I you know I'm I'm just gonna leave it on this. I don't get yeah. it. I don't understand it. I don't have any time for anybody that you lives. Know, you mentioned the military, yeah, and, and the service. I think this has been a great teacher for yeah. um, the American people. Yeah. You know, as the military went through its period of desegregation and made people work together, made people respect each other, they found out. They didn't mind working together. They didn't mind respect. They could base their decisions on people's character and skills and not on their color. And it's one of the few institutions in the United States where that's been the case. It hasn't proved to be so much the case in education, where just, you know, people thought that would be the promise right. of, of changing everything. But the military, I think, uh, we can point to the U.S. military and say, if you want to see a place where this has worked, uh, that's where. Now the question is, can the military do that same thing with sexual assault and domestic abuse and, you know, attitudes toward women? If the military can do that, it would be another great accomplishment on, on the social front. I mean, their job is not to do social things, but in order to do their mission, they have to confront these social problems. Yeah, they do, and I. Uh, but I still, I, I still feel that um, we develop into the adults that we are today. Uh, a lot has to do with our family upbringing. Uh, a lot has to do with that dynamic, uh, where we went to school. You know, all these factors. 
play into line. Right. You know, I, I consider myself a you know pretty decent, okay guy. I, I've been through some crap in my life. And when I was younger, I was the oldest of eight kids, uh, Italian-American family back east. Uh, the belt was there from day one, you know. Oh, yeah. I was scared to death of my father until I was, you know, eight years old. Then, then I resented him. I hated him because of, uh-huh. you know, the discipline. And, uh, you know... F you, you know, uh, didn't really have a relationship with him till I was in my thirties till I started having kids and looking, looking at my life as a child, looking at my life as a father. And, uh, it, it was hard for me to approach my dad and say, Hey, you know, why'd why'd you do this? Well, I found out that he grew up in a very violent household. He learned survival skills early on. And and until until we talked as as two men, not as father and son, but as two men uh, that have been through things, that that still have fears, um, uh, I wasn't able to understand where my dad came from. So I I hope there's hope for mankind that once we get a little older and travel our past, our own individual past, that we can, that we have a little bit more understanding and a little bit more forgiveness and a little bit more empathy toward, toward well, our You fellow. know, Greg, the story, the story you just told, you know, I'm African-American and often the stereotype is the father's not home. And there's many times as a kid, I wish he wasn't home because he was definitely the kind of father you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, he got my brother more than me. My brother was older, so that the struggle was between the two of them. I yeah. sort of escaped it, yeah. but it was very similar. And, and we all knew that there were, you know, there was the law, which when what the, what was the law was whatever my father said. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Why? Because I said so. Exactly. <laughs> Don't so argue that's... with me. You'll get the belt again. <laughs> Uh, hey, Jay, this has been a kick in the ass for me. I want to get you back on the air down the road here and, and talk more because I am, I am so intrigued about how we, how we grow, you know, what we, what we tuck away, what we don't tuck away, what we... Well, no, I'd love to come back and talk. Um, yeah. You know, this, this, uh, this specific novel, uh, uh, Silhouette of Virtue, uh, it deals with a lot of these issues. There's actually some police encounters here with the protagonist that Sort of interesting, given what's been going on. Yeah, there is. Yeah. I've enjoyed myself. Uh, I want to talk more because, like I said, there, there's some things that I just I, I need to I need to understand a little bit more. And I love talking to smart guys like you. Uh, you've done the research. You've done the work. Um, you've been you've got some great credentials. So. Well, thank you. Uh, folks, um, we've been talking with Jay Richards, a uh, pretty damn intelligent man. Uh, I encourage everyone to uh, read Silhouette of Virtue, uh, Jay's novel. And uh, like, thank you, Jay. Thank you very much for being on. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I feel honored being on your show. I know all the great writers you've had on there. So. Well, I've had Thanks. I've had a couple of pretty good writers on my show. I've been I've been very lucky, you know. Jay, I do this. I don't get paid for this or anything. I do this because I like I like knowledge. I like uh, I like learning things, and uh, I learn a lot from talking to you guys. Well, great, Jay Richards, Silhouette of Virtue, a, uh, a disturbing um, but understandable and very uh, well written novel, Silhouette of Virtue. Jay Richards, thank you, sir. And wish you all the best. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.